So last October, in Venezuela, in a subway, there was a man preparing to exit the car, and the story gets a little fuzzy at some point. There was some sort of altercation he got involved in. Alcohol may have played a part. One tends to get rather rambunctious under the influence, and so it happened. But as he was exiting, he didn't take didn't give his attention to the gap between the car and the platform, and he tripped and fell into that gap and got wedged between the car and the platform. And if you watch the video of what happened, you think, oh, God, don't let the car move, right? Because at that point, he's stuck. And if that car moves, he's done. They stop the car. They call the cops. They pull everybody off the car. And the cops then and the firemen just say, help us push the car to the other side of the platform. There he is, his head wedged, and all they can do is just push and push and push and try to move this, I don't know, several ton car so they can just get a little bit more space. They push, they push, they push, just enough, drops down, uh, fireman catches him, and he's fine. And he'll never forget that day. And that's Venezuela. I don't know what they say in Venezuela when you get off the car. Somebody could tell me. Um, But if you're in England, yeah, what do they say? Yeah, in England, in London, you get off the train, they say, mind the gap, right? That little space between the car and the platform, it ain't that big, but it's big enough to matter, and if you don't account for it, you will fall in, and that will be bad. If you do not account for the distance between two things, something could happen that you don't want to happen. We have been in a very uh, several-month series on the Sermon on the Mount, which we are continuing today. And, and Jesus, in that sermon, has pointed us to what is the highest good. What is that way that we, it is worth following, to worth walking in? It has shown us what is the way to goodness. It has also shown us what is the heart of God in which we might follow. But what Jesus wants to talk to us today from that sermon is about a gap that can open up, that you have to account for, That if you don't be mindful of it, something wrong, bad can happen. And that gap is so subtle and yet so dangerous because it involves an impulse in every one of us that is so natural and normal and in one sense necessary. That if you don't let this, if you don't follow this impulse, you will need it in time. And yet, if you don't account for that impulse when it comes to following God, you will not mind the gap that can open up and something will happen. And what is that impulse that is both normal and natural and necessary that you have to reckon with? It all has to do with what is common to these several scenes.
anymore, Dad. As long as I got old blue. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. You must have hit pretty close to the mark. You get her all riled up like that, huh, kid? Well, I guess you don't know everything about women yet. I am like Tinkerbell Finn. I need applause to live. From high school seniors to skywalkers to pastors, everybody likes to be affirmed. Dude, it wasn't the kiss. It was that Han saw that he kissed her. Right? It's about being noticed. It's about being affirmed. And every one of us needs that. Every one of us digs that. Every one of us is thrilled by that. It's natural. If your whole life you're shamed, you'll be a different person. Affirmation is a good thing. But that is an impulse when it comes to following God in which there can be a gap that opens up that we're going to talk about today that Jesus is speaking of. And in talking about that gap, it's more like a ditch. And so what Jesus has for us in this passage is three things. What is the way of following God? What does it look like? But secondly, what is the ditch that's along the way? And thirdly, what's the way out of the ditch if and when you fall into it? What is the way of following God? What is the ditch along the way? And when you're in the ditch, what's the way out of the ditch? I think Jesus has that for us here in the first several verses of chapter 6. So if you're able to stand, would you? We'll start in verse 1. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, And pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then skipping down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, And your father who sees in secret 
will reward you. This is the secret word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, by now, um, you've probably noticed that in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he issues a lot of warnings. Like he's got to uh, awaken us to a lot of things that we might not be mindful of, that if we're not mindful of them, it can get, create a great deal of problems for us. And that makes total sense, right? Because look, how many times, like if kids, just consider this. The fact that you're even alive is an amazing thing, that you're still alive. If your parents didn't intervene probably one billion times between now and then, you'd just not be alive anymore. And so they had to warn you. And so we shouldn't be too surprised that Jesus utters a lot of warnings. And sure enough, first word in this passage, beware, right? It's the same beware that Jesus uses with the scribes and the Pharisees specifically. And here he's saying it to anybody who's in earshot. So it's like, he means it. He means it. But what's the beware about? What's the subject of his warning? He says, beware of, quote, practicing your righteousness. So you say, what? What is that? It's a kind of a funny phrase, kind of old to our ears. What do we mean by that? We surely need to clarify what we mean by righteousness there. I mean, as recently as last week, we used the word righteousness in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And in that setting, in that context, the word righteousness means something very different. In that setting, righteousness means a right standing a welcome, a right relationship of having the favor of God. That is to be righteous in his sight, to be welcomed, to be brought in, and for him to be delighting over you. If you're a Christian, you believe that you have the righteousness of God, not because of you, but because of the righteousness of Jesus. God's favor in his Son is your favor because of what Jesus has done for you. If you're a Christian, you are righteous in his sight Because of what Jesus did. Because of his righteousness. That's one meaning of righteousness. That's not the meaning of righteousness that Jesus has in this text. When he talks about beware of practicing your righteousness. Practicing your righteousness is simply a way of saying, what expressions do you give off that demonstrate your sense of God's worth to you? What does your devotion look like? What what does it look like to follow in his way Because you've come to see him as beautiful. Everybody in this room values something. And I I can learn what you value if I look at your checkbook and what you did on your schedule this week. If you were on opening day of Avengers yesterday, I know what you value. Who does that, right? What you spend, how you spend your time, who you spend it with, the way in which you use your mouth and everything, that all demonstrates your value, what you value. It shows what you're worth, what you give yourself to. You go to a, a baseball game and someone has passed and you give a moment of silence. What does that reflect? Your sense, of your, your sense of their value. That's why you're quiet. When you go to a grave and you bring flowers, you are demonstrating. It's an expression of your sense of their value to you. On some days... You might stand and recite a passage. Ken Burns spent a whole year encouraging students to learn the Gettysburg Address. I have a friend back in Texas who on every March the 2nd, which represents the day that that Texas declared independence from Mexico, he pulls out his copy of the letter that Colonel William B. Travis sent to anybody who would listen asking for reinforcements for him at the Alamo. Two days later, he and everybody but two people would be dead. And he ends that letter saying, victory or death, 
And so my friend back in Texas recites that from memory, and we all weep because we remember, yes, what courage, what bravery on that day. In that demonstration, we're saying, that has value for me, and I will express myself. Jesus is talking about practice of righteousness here. That's what, what an older phrase for that might be our piety. Now, we don't, we don't like that word anymore. People use the word pious now. It's kind of like, oh, aren't you so pious? Aren't you so righteous in what you say? Sort of a implied that you're always looking down on somebody if you're engaged in the practice of your righteousness. Jesus is saying, the way of following God, there are things that we express that sense of his worth in what we do. Not only in what we think, but in what we do. And he rattles off three things that you've heard before. None of this is unsurprising or unfamiliar. It's not like, you know, we're going to bloodlettings and sands and stuff like that. He's talking about three things. Giving to the needy, praying, and fasting. He rattles those three off. That is not an exhaustive list of what it means to practice your righteousness. You can insert any number of things that demonstrate your sense of God's worth. He rattles off those three. What is it about those three that kind of get to the heart of what it means to practice your righteousness? The first one is giving to the needy. Of setting aside some of what you have, what you've been blessed with, for somebody else that's got jack, that is in great need. Why does Israel do that? Because it's encoded in their law. You listen to Deuteronomy 15, you hear Moses say, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. That sounds familiar, something Jesus said. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. But not just fellow Israelites. For people that are in your midst. For immigrants. For what was called sojourners in that day. Not an ethnic Israelite, but somebody that's come to take refuge in your land. And so you hear in Exodus 23... But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Who? That the poor of your people may eat, and when they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. If you remember from Advent, we listen to the book of Ruth. Ruth's a Moabite. She's not a Jew. And what does Boaz do? He tells his reapers to set aside some of the grain so that she might glean and have some of that. Who is she? She's a sojourner. She's an immigrant. She's needy. In Israel, it was encoded in their law. Take care of them. James 1.27, we heard last fall, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Giving to the needy was a thing. It's what they did. Why? Because of what's said in Deuteronomy 10.19 and other places. Love The sojourner, therefore, why? For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. To be one who is benefited from the mercy and kindness of another, that's your identity. And therefore, giving to the needy is a thing because it's part of who you are. And therefore, you get the privilege of being able to reflect that which God has been to you. That's giving to the needy. That's practicing your righteousness. Second thing is prayer. Open the middle of your Bible, you got 150 prayers of praise, of adoration, of lament, of repentance, of tears, of petition, of asking why. How long, O oh Lord, are you going to let this go on? That's prayer. It's talking. And so you read in Psalm 717, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. 
And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. That is the song. That is the prayer. That is the melody. That is the practice of righteousness. And then in Jenner reminded 29, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and what? Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you'll find your own. This too, prayer, was a thing. What about the third thing, fasting? Now, you and I hear fasting usually. It's usually in reference to a cleanse, a detox, uh, <clears throat> to let your stomach work for you better in ways than, you know, eating uh, supersize me every week. It's not why Israel is fasting. Israel would fast mostly in response to something. In response to something that grieved them. In response to a sense that perhaps there was need of repentance, both personally and corporately. Sometimes fasts were proclaimed in order to seek God's face and favor and his help. Esther, wonderful book I'd love us to read through and preach through sometime in the future. God's name is not mentioned a single time. But Esther, when the Jews are being faced with a genocide, which in miniature form our Jewish friends in San Diego are feeling again today, they proclaim a fast that God might come to their aid. When Jonah goes to Nineveh and says, you better get your act together, God's coming, what does the king of Nineveh do? He proclaims a fast. When the prophet Joel sees that Israel has forgotten their first love, he says, I don't even want you to go on your honeymoon. Let's proclaim a fast and seek the Lord's face. Always in response to something, not just sort of a a little hobby that we commit to. Isaiah, like Joel, answers Israel when Israel is beginning to say, look, we've been praying, we've been fasting, we've been sacrificing, and you're not hearing our prayers. Why is that? And Isaiah shoots back saying, I'll tell you why. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Fasts proclaimed in response to a situation requiring a kind of attention that maybe while you're eating all the time does not allow. Giving, praying, fasting, just three ways in which you might give expression to your sense of God's worth. And what they all have in common is this. They all rescue us from thinking that to live before God is to, to live before an idea. God is not an idea. He is a person with whom we relate, with whom we have to do. Not only is he not an idea, he's also not simply a philosophy or an ethical ideal. He is someone who has acted in history and is responsive to how we respond to him. And therefore, to practice our righteousness is is to revere him as he is due, but it is also meant to serve us. It is to be of benefit to us. To give, to pray, to fast, that's not just little hoops that we jump through, like a little checklist, like I need to eat more fiber and exercise more. These are means by which we express our understanding of him. These are means by which, if we don't have the slightest bit of faith in our head, we pursue the action before we have the attitude that supports it. This 
is practicing your righteousness. This is the way of following. And that's all implicit here in the warning. So now we've got to get to the warning. If that's the practice of righteousness, what's the problem? If that's the way of following, there's a ditch. And that ditch runs all the way, the same way as the way of following God. What is the ditch? What are we worried about? What we're worried about is what you saw in those clips. Everybody, every one of us wants to be seen. Every one of us wants to feel needed. Every one of us wants to have purpose. Everybody wants to feel important and and necessary and affirmed. We all want that, and we all properly want that. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when it comes to our practice of righteousness in seeking God and expressing our sense of God's worth, who is to be at the center of those expressions? Well, dumb question. Obviously, God is. But the extent to which you and I, as she says, I have to have applause to live. The extent to which we follow that impulse when it comes to our worship, it is an insidious and dangerous kind of impulse to follow. And that's why I put that moment from the apostle there at the end of the study of clips. Because if there's anybody that likes to be seen, it's the guy up front telling everybody else about God. I get this. I know this. I I am chastened by this. That's why I need to say it in these ways. There is a ditch along the way, and that ditch is all about inserting ourselves into the center of what is meant to be an expression of our sense of God's worth as the center. And so Jesus, he rattles off all this really like crazy, um, um, you know, hyperbolic language when he says, you know, don't sound any trumpet before you when you're about to announce everybody that you're giving to those who are in need. And um, when you pray, uh, you know, you don't have to give these really long verbose prayers on the city corners. I mean, who does that? Um, And when it comes to, um, you know, fasting, uh, don't let, don't look disheveled. I mean, uh, girl, wash your face. And um, thank you. And um, don't let every groan from your stomach kind of get amplified. Oh, I'm so hungry. I'm on this fast, right? All of that. Jesus kind of just lays it on thick saying, you really can seek the impulse of letting everybody know that you're practicing your righteousness. And so he's warning us about this gap, this gap that opens up a gap that comes between our actions and our intentions. He's talking about our motivations. What is moving us to do what we do. Because they matter. And they matter so much that Jesus uses no fewer than three times a really pointed word at everybody who's listening. And it's the word hypocrite. And as we said a long time ago, earlier in the series, what Jesus means by hypocrite is not kind of a common way you and I think of hypocrite. You and I think of hypocrisy as, I'm going to say one thing, I'm going to do something entirely different. Hypocrite! Jesus has a different take on that. In his life, in his meaning, hypocrisy is doing one thing, but really having your heart set on a totally different thing and leaving everybody with the impression that you're really out this thing. The hypocrisy he is warning of is to practice your righteousness in those ways that might be in public and private settings. But what's really driving it is that others would see you and affirm you so that inwardly you are all like Luke doing this. Yeah, aren't I spiritual? And the problem with that is is that it feels so normal. It's so subtle. 
and there's a payoff. I mean, people wouldn't practice their righteousness in order to be seen by people if there wasn't this itty-bitty little delicious thrill. We wouldn't do it if we didn't like it. But Jesus is saying, look, you do that, you've got a reward. Like, there's a reward in it, but it's a paltry reward. It's so paltry because, one, it's fleeting. They like you for the moment. They're impressed with you for the moment. But then, like, because you kind of dig that, you feel like, well, I better, I got to keep up with that. And, like, that becomes your pattern. Not only is it paltry, it's premised on a lie. You're doing one thing, giving people a certain impression about you, and that's not what's really motivating you. So you are perpetrating a lie. Wow, awesome reward. You've, you've tricked everyone. That's a reward. It's just a reward that's totally empty. Some of you are old enough to remember um, a television show, a live television show that came out in 1986. Geraldo Rivera <clears throat> caught wind. Of a re- yeah, thank you. Of a renovation project that was going on underneath the Lexington Hotel in Chicago. The Lexington Hotel, for those of you who are students of history, was the place where Al Capone and his mafia kings all kind of set up shop. And they had a bunch of stuff underneath the hotel. They kept their goods, uh, their booze, their their jewels, whatever it might be. And so when these guys start to do this renovation project back in the eighties, they find this wall that's got something behind it and it's walled off and it's a chamber, but nobody, like there's no door, there's no, there's no way in, but they know there's something back there. And so Geraldo Rivera makes this pitch to the television companies, let me take a sledgehammer with the camera, break in, let's pull out everything that Al Capone must have left in there. And so they go and they've got their sledgehammers and these 30 guys in blue suits and hats come in there and they've all got their sledgehammers, smack, 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 get into the wall, pull out the bricks, Geraldo's ready to grab in there and pull anything out, Opens the chamber, what's there? Nothing. Nothing. Now, we all laugh about it now, and he's kind of like hallowed for looking like an idiot at that moment. But there it was. All this effort, all this movement, all of this, let's just call it what it is, an attempt to let Geraldo look great. And all he does is unearth an empty chamber. Jesus is saying that for us, when it comes to practicing our righteousness, if we start to insert ourselves as the most important one to be shown affirmation in that practice, that's like unearthing an empty chamber. There's a reward. It's just not worth the reward. Now, as soon as I start talking about Jesus saying, don't practice your righteousness in order to be seen, some of you may be replaying the tape in your mind about something else Jesus said Several weeks ago, back in chapter 5. There in chapter 5, verse 16, he says, You're the light of the world. Okay, cool. But then Jesus says this. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. What? Back in chapter 5, he says, Do my good works that I might be seen, that they may give glory to your Father in heaven. That's chapter 5. Chapter 6, do not practice, beware of practicing your righteousness before men in order to be seen. What is it? Which one? Answer, both, Alex. What's the problem? When it comes to chapter 5, about letting your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Look, how many people in this world 
have been persuaded of the truth of Jesus by seeing manifestations of others' belief in Jesus by what they say or do? How many of you in this room were persuaded, not just by what you read, but by what you saw in somebody else in which you thought, I think there's something legit to what you're talking about because what you do, that is rather remarkable. All of us have at one time or another seen something in someone else and it was an act of persuasion. That's why Jesus prays in John 17, not only for his disciples, but for the whole world that they might see the love that exists between those disciples. Why? So that those people might believe that Jesus was not just a figure of history, but that was someone who had been sent by God. There is something persuasive about seeing one's expression of their sense of God's worth. And if we conceal all that, it's kind of like, this is actually a great advertisement for his goodness. What Jesus is talking about here in this passage, it's not so much whether it is a public or private thing. It has everything to do with what your motivation is. You can be totally public before millions about your expression, your sense of God's worth. You just have to realize that there may be part of your heart that you've got to inspect and check moment by moment, hour by hour, to make sure you are not the center of everyone's attention. That's what he's warning us about. It's not about location, location, location. It's about motivation, motivation, motivation. Your devotion needs to mind any kind of gap that opens up between your action and your intention. That's his good. Why is that such a deal? Why is that that such a big deal? Why is he so concerned with this? I want to show you a scene from a recent Avengers film. Don't worry. Not the most recent one. Wouldn't I be in trouble? Um, This is a moment in Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man, when he... When Iron Man has made him a really cool, slick, almost impenetrable suit. And uh, he says he can't wear it yet. But Spider-Man kind of says, I'm going to do it myself. So he, like, under cover of darkness, he grabs the suit that Iron Man made for him. And then he goes off and starts to do superhero stuff. And it's really effective. It's an excellent suit. And he's got excellent skills. But it doesn't go as well as he thought it would be. And people are endangered. And yet, you know, everything's fine. But here's this little, shall we say, sit down between Iron Man and Spider-Man about the problem with him using the suit and how he's thinking of the suit. And it's not the, it's not the suit. It's, it's what the suit represents. So listen. Stay away from this. Instead, you hacked a multi-million dollar suit so you could sneak around behind my back doing the one thing I told you not to do. Is everyone okay? No thanks to you. No thanks to me? Those weapons were out there, and I tried to tell you about it, but you didn't listen. None of this would have happened if you had just listened to me. <laughs> if you even cared, you'd actually be here. I did listen, kid. Who do you think called the FBI, huh? Do you know that I was the only one who believed in you? Everyone else said I was crazy to recruit a 14-year-old kid. I'm 15. No, this is where you zip it, all right? The adult is talking. <laughs> what if somebody had died tonight? Different story, right? Because that's on you. And if you died, I feel like that's on me. I don't need that on my conscience. Yes, sir. I'm yes. sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, doesn't I understand. I just, I just wanted to be like you. And I wanted you to be better. Okay, it's not working out. I'm going to need the suit back. For how long? Forever. Yeah. 
Give the no, 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 please, 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 Mr. Let's Stark, have it. you don't understand. Please, this is all I have. I'm nothing without this suit. If you're nothing without this suit, then you shouldn't have it, okay? God, I sound like my dad. If you're nothing without the suit, you shouldn't have it. What is the suit? It's not the color scheme. It's the sense of recognition. It's the sense of inward and outward affirmation. It's the sense of, I will only be okay if I can let everybody know that I'm okay, and this suit sure proves to everybody that I am okay. And Iron Man's fatherly advice is to say in that moment, if you're not okay with the suit, then you're really not ready to be in the suit because you've made it all about you again. And I know I'm sounding like a broken record, but it was last week that Paul says to the church of Philippi, in so many words, it's not about you. And the more you make it about you, the more you fall into the danger of the gap. Because when you let that gap widen and you fall into it and you let the suit matter, the the recognition that you're involved in God's work and God's business, and gosh, am I preaching to myself here. In that moment, you have set yourself up for chafing, for becoming embittered when you are not recognized for your participation. If you let you become the center of your practice of righteousness, you know what you've set yourself up for? You have set yourself up for a self-righteous looking down on everybody that's not doing what you think they should be doing and what you're doing. Because it's all about you again. That's the danger. That's the ditch. And we're all susceptible to it, whether we're public people or private people. If that's the problem, if that's the ditch along the way of what it means to properly follow God in expression of his worth to us, what's the way out of the ditch? Because most of the time it feels like all I'm going to do is push myself into it because I'm mostly worried about me. Like I want you to believe something about me. What's the way out of the ditch? Uh, Jesus uses these equally vivid little turns of phrase. Uh, When it comes to giving, don't let your left hand know what the right hand is doing. How's it going? I'm fine. Um, When it comes to praying, uh, you you go into the closet and you just sort of, you go pray like that and you just pray. And when it comes to fasting, wash your face, girl. Wash your face, dude. If you're fasting, okay, put on a tie. I don't know, just whatever. Don't try to attract attention to yourself. And all that's really vivid, and all of it's really clear. But what's Jesus' motivation? That's his instruction. What's the motivation for doing that? Every one of those practices, when you're doing it in secret, he says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Uh Uh-oh. What? Reward? He will reward me for a practice of righteousness that keeps him at the center of the practice. Reward? I thought, wait a minute. I thought... (laughs) I was righteous in your sight, Father, because um, of what Jesus did. That's true. In fact, let's think about what Jesus did for us just through the lens of him practicing our righteousness. You know how Jesus practiced his righteousness? He fasted for 40 days, tempted in a wilderness with the one who holds us all in fear. And he didn't do that because he was bored. He did that for you. 
when Jesus prays. He prays help from the Father to be directed by his Father, and he even prays for you right now, and he prays for those that were beating him and whipping him and stoning him and all that stuff. He prays. We'll talk about that more next week when we just listen to his instruction to his disciples about prayer. And when it comes to giving to the needy, friends, we're all broke. And he said that at the top of the sermon. Blessed are who? The poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who realize that they have nothing to give God. For him to go, "Mm, nice, impressive, you're in. We've got nothing. We're needy. And all we could bring to him was our need. And what does he do? He gives everything he's got so that we might be entrusted with the riches that cannot fade and cannot be stolen. That's his practice of righteousness, all of which culminates there. And in that culmination, that practice of his righteousness, you know what he gets? He gets us as his reward. Those for whom he died are God's reward to him. They belong to him. He is now the head of their church. They are now children of the living God. They belong to him because of what he did in his practice of righteousness, not because of ours. That's the good news. That's why we're righteous in his sight, because of what he did. The way out of the ditch is not to will, I'm going to do better in my practice of righteousness. The way out of the ditch is, first of all, and always believing that Jesus practiced his righteousness perfectly because you and I didn't and can't. When we believe that we belong to him, when we believe that we are forgiven in him, when we believe that we have an inheritance set aside for us by him that cannot perish or fade, when we believe that, then you and I, in our practice of righteousness, it ceases to be anything to prove something to anybody else To prove anything to God, it simply becomes a means of communing with him and acting in his way. That's the calling. That's the privilege. That's the practice of righteousness. That's the way out of the ditch. Is to let him pull you out. There's no other way. What would be a very concrete way of trying to put this passage into practice? Here's an idea. I I suggest it to you. It may apply to some of you. It may not apply to all of you. There are some circumstances in which it might not be practical or possible. But what if, for the next, say, 8 to 12 weeks, you fast one meal a week? You pick it. And when you fast, when you don't eat, you take the money that you would have spent on that meal and you set it aside. I don't put it in a piggy bank, whatever. You set aside the money for something else. You set aside the time to pray. What if we got you every week just a series of prompts on things that you might pray for? You can pray down the list or you can pray whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You just use the time to go into your closet and pray wherever it is. You fast. You set aside the money. You pray. And then part of your prayer over those 8 to 12 weeks is, who needs this money that I've set aside after I'm done? And then you give that need to somebody that may need it. What if? Now, it doesn't apply to everybody. Some people, you better not fast. It's not good for you if you fast. I get it. I understand. We have to modify the situation, modify the way to respond to it. But kids, if you're going to do this, talk to dad and mom first. 
let you talk through it. But this is just a really concrete way of trying to bring all of these threads together in just a real simple way of imagining what does it mean to practice our righteousness in a way that we're not trying to prove anything to anybody, but we're trying to make him the center of it and see what happens. Now, I know he said, don't tell, he's worried about us practicing our righteousness um, so that others may see us. I'm saying if two or three of you want to do this together, that's cool. It's not about whether anybody else knows it. It's really mostly about your motivation. If you tell them so that they might think highly of you, okay, don't. But if your group just decides, hey, what if on Tuesday morning we're going to all skip breakfast? Cool. Again, it's not about whether it's public or private. It's always about what's your intention. Look, I know I'm the first to know motives are always mixed. They will always be mixed. But motives, too, still matter. And that's why we work through them. And that's why even if we're not sure if they're totally pure, pure, we walk in that way anyway. Friends, this is the way of following him. Not to prove anything to him. Not to make him love us anymore because we can't. But only perhaps to discover more of him in the process of walking with him and ensuring that we're not at the center of our actions. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless what we've just talked about, that you would preserve us and prevent us and preempt us from thinking that this is a way to to garner your favor. It can't be. There is nothing that we might do that would be a substitute for what your son has done. But we do pray, Father, if there is what we might learn, what we might let go of, what we might discover, that you would bless our desire to walk in your way and to know you more and to know that we're known by you. Father, it's through your Son that we are his reward. I pray that you would help us to see you as our greatest reward and to walk in that beauty. In Jesus' name, amen.